0: Before the game of thrones was a buzzword, anywhere, there was a game of thrones played in India. And it was not just a struggle for power, it was a fight between dharma and adharma. And that uh, game of thrones or that fight was uh, chronicled by the genius called Ved Vyasa. And he called it Jai Navatsa Itihasa, Itihasa called Jay. Today we know that epic as the Mahabharata, the greatest epic of the world, I would say. They say that there is no human emotion that is present, that is not there in the Mahabharat. It's got everything. It's got love, it's got hatred, it's got valor, it's got cowardice, it's got pride, it's got lust, it's got renunciation, everything. You name a human emotion and it's there in the Mahabharat. They say that me, in the world is in the Mahabharat and if there is nothing in the world, then in the And I'm especially happy that this talk is happening in Pune because phenomenal work on Mahabharata has happened in this city. Bandarkar Oriental Research Institute has done painstaking work on a critical edition of Maharashtra, uh, of the Mahabharata. And the Mahabharata is important for us because you see it reflected in our arts, in our culture, in our music, in our paintings, in our crafts, in our architecture, in Hindi movies. And nowadays, there are Mahabharata apps and games being played. So the Mahabharata was relevant then, and the Mahabharata is relevant now. And how it is relevant, that Professor Adluri and Joydeep Bakchi are going to tell us today. I request Mayuresh to introduce uh, Vishwa Adluri and Joydeep Bakchi.
1: Professor Vishwa Adluri teaches philosophy, religion, art history and honors at Hunter College, New York. Uh, He is an expert in modern reception of ancient thought. He has published numerous books, uh, volumes and articles on Greek uh, and 20th century philosophy. Mahabharat, Orientalism, and the Western Reception of Indian Texts. He holds PhD in Philosophy from the New School for Social Research, New York, and uh, Indology from Phillips University, Marburg, Germany, and in Sanskrit and Lexicography from Deccan College, Pune. We also have with us today uh, Mr. Jaydeep Bokchi, he uh, is a, he's a postdoctoral fellow at Ludwig Maximilians University, Munich. He is a graduate of the New School for Social Research, New York, PhD in Philosophy. He has studied at the universities of uh, Frauburg and Berlin. Together with uh, uh, Mr. Adluri, he is the co-author of *Ne Science, A History of German Indology, New York, Oxford University Press, 2014. And uh, also, Philology and Criticism, A Guide to Mahabharat, Textual Criticism, uh, which, was published, uh, which is uh, said to be published by Anthem Press in London uh, later this year. Over to you. Thank you.
2: Thank you for those introductions. Um, so we're going to start the presentation. Vishwa and I want today is with you because this is uh, a small audience and we prefer small audiences because then we don't have to so much teach as we can engage and talk about these issues. We have been in India on a very, very busy three-week book tour to discuss the Mahabharata and our book on the Mahabharata and now it's slowly drawing to a close. So the teaching part was done and now what we're doing is sort of the fun part because we get to engage with audiences outside the university. So everything we did in the past two weeks was within university settings or largely academic people, and now we want to just go out and talk to people and see what people think about the Mahabharata and why they would attend. On a Sunday evening at 6 p.m., That so many people came out. We have no illusions that you came out for us. (laughs) Um, We're quite confident that it was the the name Mahabharata in the title that still says something to some people, and perhaps the idea of the enduring meaning of the Mahabharata. So I want to actually start there. What did the title, the enduring meaning of the Mahabharata mean to you? Anyone? That is
1: relevant in
2: in all times. Relevant in all times, okay. Yes through this entry is good? Context-free. Context-free. Context-free, okay. Enduring meaning of the Mahabharata. Does anyone know if that title means something more specific? Have you heard a title like that before? The Sanskritists among you, I'm looking at you. And one in particular has been working on this book. Anyone?
3: Sanatana?
2: No, but there's a book with that title. Okay. In 1942, Vishnu Sitaram Sukthankar, a name you must all know, gave a series of four lectures at the Bombay Asiatic Society. And the title of those lectures or that lecture was On the Meaning of the Mahabharata. So we very deliberately chose this title on the enduring meaning of the Mahabharata to sort of broaden the dialogue. The dialogue is now also with Sukthankar. How many of you have read this text on the meaning of the Mahabharata? Anyone? Raise your hands. So only a few. If you haven't read it, it's a set of four very short essays, about 20 pages each, and then compiled into a book of about 80 pages. You must read this book. It's available from Motilal Das. It's very inexpensive, very simple and straightforward, and it's a beautiful book because he is talking, as Vishwa and I are trying to do today, he is talking to an audience, not an academic audience, but an audience of people interested in the Mahabharata. When Sukhantar wrote this book or gave these lectures in 1942, the title was simply On the Meaning of the Mahabharata, because for a long time people had thought the Mahabharata didn't have a meaning. That was the prejudice he was battling, that over 200 years of critical scholarship had reduced the Mahabharata to such a state that no one thought this text had a meaning anymore. It was considered an absurd and a meaningless text. And so the first chapter, the first lecture of this book, starts with trying to say, the Mahabharata is not what Western critics have thought it is. It's not a meaningless jumble of stories. There is some deep, profound, philosophical meaning to this text. And then the next three chapters talk about the story on the mundane, the ethical and the metaphysical plane. So at three levels he tries to show there is a deeper and deeper, or you want to say a higher and higher meaning of the text. I took up the title on the enduring meaning of the Mahabharata because we think Sukhankar did the work of showing that this, of defending this text and showing there's a meaning to it. But that meaning may be deeper than we ever thought it could be and that's what our talk today is going to be about. So... This is the quote Sukthankar asks. Can we... I have the ex- access to the lights. One. Can you just turn this up? This is the question Sukthankar asks in On the Meaning of the Mahabharata. What is the secret of this book of which India feels after nearly 2,000 years that she has not yet had enough? She being India after 2000 years people are still reading it and the mahabharata is aware of this it says as long as poets are telling it now poets will tell it and have told it in the past poets will tell it in the future why are we not done with this text why does it keep coming back into our lives to give you a simple example vishwa and i are by training western philosophers our education was in new york mine was significantly in germany we are experts on heidegger nietzsche greek philosophy And it's the most surprising thing in the world that we should come back to the Mahabharata. It's not something we chose or we sought out. But having reached a certain place in philosophy, suddenly the text found us. And the text comes to us, and the text picked us up and brought us into its own narrative. So there's something about this text that, even if you think you've gotten away from it, even if you think it's a primitive thing, even if you think it's a very simple folk story, Even if you think it's some kind of historical war and now it's dead and gone, somehow that text seems to be alive. It seems to be capable of picking us up out of our everyday lives and giving us a purpose and transforming reality. So, Suktamper asks this question what is that secret? So, I want to throw that question out to you. What is the secret? Why did you all come today? Why do you feel you've not had enough? You've surely all watched, you know, started with the Amar Chitra Katha and watched the Sunday TV series. But clearly we've not had enough. So anyone? You can relate with each and every part of it. Okay. Yeah. The story that I've read uh, before as a child seems very different as
3: a matter. So
2: uh,
3: there is some other meaning that I keep finding every few years. So...
2: Okay, is that true of every story? Yes, probably, right? But not every story comes back to us after 2,000 years. We've had novels, we've had literature, we've had Sanskrit drama, we've had the entire sort of colonial English-speaking education. We all learned Shakespeare in school, or most of us were forced to memorize Shakespeare. Oh, the sparks never go away. <laughs> Even now, in my sleep, sometimes a few lines come back. What about this text? You wanted to hear what you had found, which we had. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, the problems I face today, I feel, I feel, I think there. Uh, I'm facing it for
1: the first time. Okay. But looking at Mahabharata, you know, it's, it's, somebody has faced it earlier. They have found their way out. So okay. I'm looking at it as a Somebody has already travelled on the path, so what is the journey? What could be there? That's why I'm coming. That's why I'm reading Mahabharata again.
2: But to an extent all literature does that, what is different about this text? Because it is as relevant
0: in terms of sheer human
2: emotions. Okay. As
3: it was.
2: Sheer human emotions. So somehow, you said this at the beginning, somehow the Mahabharata seems to contain a lot more than other texts. Do you all agree? Yes. Is that simply a function of the fact that it's a big book, a hundred thousand verses? Could be because we
0: have really no characters in any other epic.
2: Okay. So it's, it's sort of equivalent to a large library. Right? So, we go there to find things and we end up finding it because it's sort of stuffed full of things. But is that the only reason the text keeps com- coming back to us? There's also Gita. Harvard, <laughs> <Very good. laughs> okay, so we're not going to answer the question right now. I just wanted to introduce this notion that something about this text is different from other works of literature. It's not just the fact that it's a narrative, it's not just the fact that it has characters that we can relate to, it's not even the fact that it has a lot of emotions or that it is specifically an Indian text because there are other Indian texts we don't come back as much to. So today's lecture is all going to be about why this text keeps coming back, its enduring meaning, that it reinserts itself again and again into our lives. I'm going to take you through a few sort of approaches to the Mahabharata very briefly, and then Vishwa is going to show you why this text is so important, why it sort of seems to come back into our lives and pick us up. It's something we haven't even thought about, the reason this text comes back and he will discuss how the text actually creates a kind of machine in which all of us live, that we actually live inside this text. That is why the Mahabharata differs from other texts. It's not a story that just gives us models for understanding, it's the story in which we are all acting. It is the world, the cosmos within which we live, is the Mahabharata. Even now, what we are doing, the Mahabharata is somehow scooped into history and picked up all of us and put put us inside its story. (coughs) This is again a quote from Subtankar. This is practically, according to historical sources, this is the last words he ever wrote or uttered. And here he's fighting against what he calls the pseudo-scientific mood that we might discard this great book. What is that pseudo-scientific mood? The pseudo-scientific mood says the Mahaparata is a book. Bookings, books exist. There are lots of books through history. One may be bigger than another, one may be smaller than another, one may at one time have more relevance, one time at another may have less or equal relevance. Books exist in history so we can identify their authors or the milieu, the environment in which they were written. So the scientist will say, this is a text written in 400 AD or 400 BC, it reflects the concerns of those people at those times. To understand this book, you have to reconstruct their world. So you have to understand this work as a historical work, right? That would be the scientific approach. The critical approach of looking at literature is when was it written? Why was it written? What did the author want to say? What did he want to con- communicate? And whom did he try to influence? These are the kinds of questions we ask. So, is saying that if we do that, we would act as though we'd outgrown the book, right? So if we say someone wrote it in 400 BC and he wanted to address some special social situation or something in his environment, well, that doesn't apply to us anymore. We are clearly more advanced. We don't have those problems anymore or we have a better understanding of the world today and therefore we can discard this book. It's no longer relevant. Sukhtapar is going to say something quite different. He's going to say the book is not something we can discard because it is the content of our collective unconscious. What does that mean? The Mahabharata has somehow nested itself inside us, in the heart of our collective unconscious. And therefore, even when we think we've outgrown it, even when we think we've moved on, Somehow it's there at the back guiding us. That's what the unconscious does, right? Even when you think you're consciously doing certain actions, impulses and direction is coming from the unconscious. So at some level, the Mahabharata is moving us around. Rather than we being the ones who are picking up this text and discarding it, the Mahabharata is treating us like figures on a chess piece moving us around. And that's the challenge he poses that we have to recognize this text as our own soul. That's a very, very complicated idea. How can a text be our own soul? But that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. So I promised we would go to some prejudices about the Mahabharata. Before I go to this slide, I have this habit all my students from Bhangarkun Institute know. I give away the answer and then I ask the question and then I say, oops, I have to go back a slide. What What is the Mahabharata? Someone tell me the story in two lines. <laughs> Summarize
3: it. and
2: Okay, a fight. Anyone else? Good and evil. Okay, you can give it a deeper meaning, an allegorical meaning, and say it's not a fight between two tribes, or in addition to being a fight about two tribes, it's an allegorical conflict about good and evil. What else? Any interpretations to good and evil many interpretations, is that the only story in the book? Fight for for
4: supremacy.
2: A fight for supremacy.
3: Dharma-dharma
2: war. Dharma-dharma war. So we've sort of got a historical meaning plus an allegorical interpretation plus a moral lesson or a moral fable that you're supposed to draw from the Mm -hmm. meaning. In addition to that, the the Pandava-Kaurav conflict, is there anything else in the Mahabharata? Not Gita. Fighting for your rights. Fighting for
0: your rights? It's actually, the good is, I mean, everybody, it's not good and bad, it's like everybody is good
2: and bad. Okay, so complex story. This view of the Mahabharata is a kind of simple epic story about some family, and then it sort of started expanding, layers were added, interpretations were added, the whole thing was wound up in a kind of moral fable. This is an interpretation that came up in the last 200 centuries. It is not, hmm? did I say 200 centuries? No, oh, yeah. 200 <laughs> years, two centuries. So, this is not an interpretation that you find actually within the tradition. <laughs> this view that there was a kind of simple original story, and then people added things to it. They added the Upakhyanas, they added, added uh, sorry, philosophical bits like the Bhagavad Gita, which people mentioned several times. This is a view that was gradually created over two hundred years and it is responsible for the loss of the meaning of the Mahabharata. Because when you look at the text like that, it starts to look like every other work in history. It started as a simple primitive story which, you know, two thousand years ago there was some kind of fight between... How many of you have seen the Peter Brooks Mahabharata? Okay couple of people. Peter Brooks did a kind of 8-hour film of the Mahabharata where he sort of stripped it of all its richness and its philosophical detail and its elaborate scenery, and he sort of showed it in a very tribal fashion, that they're fighting with simple wooden uh, spears or stakes, and these are very simple tribes that live in sort of cave-like dwellings. It's very artistic in a way. But that retelling actually reflects this prejudice. That's what the Mahabharata must really be, a kind of simple conflict. That view was articulated brilliantly by the German Indologist Hermann Oldenburg. And he writes that it began its existence as a simple epic narrative. It grew in the course of the centuries to a monstrous chaos. Besides the main narrative, there are true primal forests of smaller narratives Countless and endless teachings about the theological, philosophical, and natural scientific matters, law, politics, worldly wisdom, and practical wisdom. A poem full of deep dreaming and intuition, etc., etc. And you can read the rest. This is kind of the view we have come to have of the Mahabharata, not as an integrated whole, not as one total work of art. Right? If you go to a work of art and you start taking apart, let's take as something as simple as a painting, it's a total work. Every brush stroke there has been placed intentionally. And you can't get the effect of a work of art if you sort of take a little uh, magnifying glass and start reading the first centimeter of it, and then the second centimeter. You will destroy the work of art. And this is exactly what's happening here. We've somehow, over 200 years, lost our sense for this total work of art, that it can totally and utterly, you look at it in one instant and you are changed, you are transformed. When did that go away? This ability to read the text and be transformed by it. As I mentioned, this view of the Mahabharata is something that came up very, very slowly. It is not a view. If you read the... Janavi here is reading the commentators on the Mahabharata. So she knows much more about this topic. But if you even look at the basic introductions of the commentators, the ones I've looked at, they're all convinced that this is a text that is revealing Narayana. There is no doubt about it. Um, Bodha says it is praising three Vikrama. So all the commentators are convinced that this text is somehow a work of art that is in a flash going to reveal to you a theophany. Do you all know what the word theophany means? Do you know what the word epiphany means? Okay. So an epiphany is when you have a sudden realization. Uh, It's from the verb phino, which is the Greek for to to appear, to manifest. So when we say phenomenon, do you know the word phenomenon? So phenomenon is simply that which appears. A theophany is the manifestation of the god, of in plural, the gods. So the Mahabharata is a theophany, it's, that's what the tradition has seen it as. It's a complete work, and when you grasp this work in a flash, the gods will manifest. Which gods? Vishnu. Vishnu, yes, and? So would all see because they were at the origin. All three, the Trimurti manifests. Who else manifests through the Mahabharata? Indra, Surya. Indra, Surya. Ganesha Ganesha also at the head of it. And Devi, very important because in the story of Amba, how many of you know the story of Amba? So Amba is really the Devi because she is the mother and she has this conflict with Bhima. Vishma, Vishwa may tell you something about it. This understanding of the Mahabharata is one, a total work of art, and two, a total work of art that doesn't just create an epiphany, some kind of mundane realization, but is a theophany. Somehow that has gotten lost. And these are sort of some of the wicked characters in our narrative. We wrote a whole book about these people who bit by bit historicized the Mahabharata. So this is their interpretation that it's for the Bahagata because its leading story is devoted to the history of some descendants of an ancient king of India. This is the way we now mostly receive the epics. All of us think that Mahabharata, Ramayana must be talking about some ancient kings and Vishwan, I just came from a conference in Delhi, but the important thing, the absolutely decisive question for India was, we have to decide the date of the Mahabharata war. (laughs) On which day did it begin? And this being Delhi, they were all competing for government grants and since greater antiquity is associated with greater prestige, one person stood up and said, I propose 3,100 and the next one got up and said, 5,100 and the third one said, I'll raise you to 8,000 and finally it sort of gone to 9,000, 10,000, 16,000 and they've agreed there must be another conference where they'll get together <laughs> and agree <laughs> on the date finally, because we can't have this much dissension. But even if you knew the exact date and the exact hour and the exact second on which Bhishma fell, it would not change anything in your life. Does It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And the Mahabharata is not history in that way. Sukhankar will actually say it is not, as you saw in the last quote, it's somehow not our past, it's our present, and Vishwa and I go further, we think it's the future. This is the text where after you finish with Western philosophy, after you read people like Heidegger and you talk about the end of metaphysics, the end of philosophy, then suddenly you go to the Mahabharata and realize the ancients knew this. They knew where modern technological rationality is going to go. They knew where humanity is going to end up. And what do you do when you see a danger coming to someone you love very much? you write them a note. If you are in the past, think of it like your grandmother and she sees how you are developing as a child and she knows what's going to happen. But she can't be around to talk to you, she writes you a note. All ancient texts, not just the Mahabharata, all in, because we have dedicated our lives to ancient philosophy, they are warnings to us moderns written by our forefathers. They have sat down in paper and pen, all their wisdom, all their insight, all their understanding, because they see the dangers that are coming up. And so they write these texts to warn us of that danger. So this is the historicization of the Mahabharata. And these are the three questions that come up. After you've looked at the interpretation of the Mahabharata, first, is it an epic like other epics? Does it occur in history like other texts? And is it a composite work assembled in picturesque disarray? The third of these questions, I'll take them backwards. Uh, I'll start with three, go to two, and then Vishwa is going to address one. So my my bit will come to an end soon. The question of desolane was the first prejudice we had to battle. Before you can say this is a work of art, you have to show that it is just a work, that it holds together as a work. And that's no easy thing. For 200 years, I showed you some of the quotes, the kinds of prejudices, the kinds of interpretations that have been supplied, have taken apart this text and said, okay, there's a core story, it's about some ancient king, and then onto that people kept adding things. So Vishwa and I could not read this text philosophically, we tried, and we were told this was the Indian religious approach. This was the approach Indians took to always smooth away differences, and we looked at them and said in every sentence, if you're going to get a meaning, you have to smooth away differences. It's not an Indian approach, it's a logical approach. But we had to actually fight them on this issue. So The first book we wrote was called The Nay Signs, which traced the history of these prejudices. It showed how these prejudices came up one by one. And I'll show you one or two slides on those prejudices. The second book that we published is called Argument in Design. And remember, people said there was a core narrative, and then people added other stories. Does anyone know the name for those additional stories in the Mahabharata? Upakhyanas.
3: Upakhyanas,
2: good. So this is a book on the Mahabharata's Upakhyanas, obviously not all of them. I think there's something like 67 of them or 69 of them. But we threw out a challenge to scholars. We said, pick your favorite Upakhyana and see if it makes sense. Relate it to the main story and see if it's there for a reason. So for about 13 of them, uh, we got contributions. Vishwa and I have one each in that. And we tried to show that the Upakhyanas really do make sense. They're always told to a specific character in a specific context. And they're not just told to pass the time. They're told because they provide vantage points from which you reflect upon the narrative. The Mahabharata will not give you a kind of didactic or dogmatic solution to problems. It will offer you another narrative. So, if the question of dharma arises, what is the right thing to do, it won't dogmatically say this is the thing to do. It will tell you a story about someone who is in a similar situation. This, to the western spellers, sounded frightfully naïve, right? What kind of people are these? That every time there's a crisis, they sit down and say, let's first make tea. And over tea, let's have some conversations and let's tell stories. And then in those stories, there are characters who are having problems. And what do those characters do? They also make tea. And they tell other stories. So you have this kind of fractal logic where there are stories within stories within stories and nothing seems to be resolved. And you look around at, at, especially if you're German and you're used to a kind of very strict legal code, you look at this and say, this is absurd. There are two reasons though for that. First, how many of you have any kind of legal training? Okay, so a few people. Ultimately, even if the law is made as unambiguous and precise as possible, it will come down to a problem of application. Gardema in his book, Truth and Method, talks about this. The problem of hermeneutics, of interpretation, is fundamentally one of application. And that is why lawyers do not go strictly by the law. They also look at past cases. Right? You try to understand, you try to gather relevant examples. Mahabharata is doing something very sophisticated with Dharma. It's not like Manusmriti. It's not going to give you a codified law book. It's trying to understand the problem of application. That's the first reason why you have these Upatyanas. They're stories within stories, reflecting on them. But the other thing that happens when you start telling stories within stories is you understand the narrative quality of all reality. All reality is basically a narrative. Just to introduce us, the easiest way, the physical, the empirical way to introduce us would have been to point to us, but that's not what Shefali did. She told you just in a few lines a story about us, and not the name, not the physical appearance, but that little story started telling you something about who we were. Every person tells a narrative about himself and then actualizes that narrative. This goes even to the level of countries. All reality basically has a narrative character. Countries project narratives and then they fulfill them. I'll give you the simplest example because it's something I I was looking up the other day. America tells the story of manifest destiny. Have you heard these words? So it tells itself that it was sort of God-given that it would expand into the West and become this great nation. And lo and behold, after the, the idea of manifest destiny comes up, what happens? It actually fulfills that narrative. So reality is fundamentally narrative, and these Upakhyanas are, by constantly embedding narratives, they bring out that narrated quality of reality. So this was the second book, and the third one, which is forthcoming, and is about a thousand pages of truth reading to be done, is this one, on the Mahabharata critical edition. So I'm going to show you just two or three more slides about the problems of the historical interpretation, This is the first time, 1837 is the first time, uh, I don't know if you can see 1837 down here. This is the first time a historical interpretation is volunteered for the Mahabharata. The Mahabharata is a collection of old epic poems which have been intentionally added on to the battle of the Pandavas. So what is original is the poem of the battle, then some additional poems were added on It's not a single old heroic legend. It is not even a collection of historical sounds in the genuine sense. Something historical has been preserved without the knowledge of the compilers themselves. So somehow we have preserved this story and in that story there is a historical story about a battle, but we don't even know it's historical. This was the accusation in 1837 that Indians did not know that the heart and core of this story was a battle. What battle? this being Christian Larsen, the father of anti-semitism and of uh, Aryanism, that battle could only be a racial battle. So he interpreted the entire Mahabharata as a fight between invading Aryans and native dark-skinned aboriginals. Because of this accusation that although you Indians have preserved the Mahabharata without understanding the history that is preserved in it, for 200 years Indians have tried to answer back by saying, no, 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 we understand perfectly, it's historical, and let's provide the evidence, let's dig up the bones, let's find the painted greyware, let's find the racial things, and Indians themselves have bought this racial conflict interpretation. It can be dismissed in one word, it's bound It's the fantasy of a deranged and sick man. If you ever go into race theory, you will find that Hitler, Chamberlain, Gobineau, the chain goes back to Christian Larsen, This is sort of the founding moment of German racial anti-Semitism.
4: Why did he he give a racial interpretation?
2: What was at stake for him? Was he interested in India? Oh, so Christian Lassen is the first... When you study race theory, you will come up with many famous names. But very few people mention Lassen, although Lassen is really the first theoretician of race. He even precedes Gobineau. When Arthur de Gobineau starts writing this book, on, I think it is called Essays, which is on the different races of humanity. For historical information, he consults a four-volume treatise written by this man, in which he maps all the races. From the Bindia, he says, some of them have green eyes, and therefore they come from a more advanced race, and some elements of Aryan race have survived, and in South India, they are darker, and so on. He provides a complete racial catalogue of the Indian people. Now, you would think that Larson went deeply into the forests of India, examined the hills, examined the tribesmen, sort of made measurements and so on. Right? Someone wrote an entire catalogue of Indian races. Lassen never made it to India. He never <laughs> left Europe. He was collecting traveler's tales, and whenever they said, you know, people look like this, he already had in his mind a taxonomy or a hierarchy of races, and he just started slotting in this information. So, in his his mind, or in his four-volume book, you can really see the discourse of race germinating. This is really where it begins, that there is a kind of hierarchy, there is a value attached to being white, certain characteristics, rationality, the ability to develop science, uh, civilization, these are all associated with skin color. And the second quote, which I won't read, but that has sort of completely shifted and tampered with our interpretation of the Mahabharata. The second thing that Larson did is, how do you go from a text that is a theophany to making it a history? Well, you do something called selective reading. So, he starts grading the Mahabharata precisely the way he graded Indian races. He will say that the first part of the epic, were narratives from older history and this is sort of the true part of the Mahabharata. Whatever values in the Mahabharata comes from this level of its composition. The second category is the cosmogonic and theogonic um, content and the creation of beings by the Prajapatis that is narrated in the first book. There's a F.I. missing there. You see the inversion that is happening? For anyone reading this book, look, where is history occurring? You can't tell a historical narrative. We cannot even tell the story of where we are right now. If I start asking you, where are we right now, someone? Okay, and where is that? And where is Pune? And where is India? What? Asia. And where is Asia? And where is the world? In the cosmos. In the cosmos. So, a historical narrative, if it is to be self-aware and comprehensive, cannot even begin unless it begins with a cosmology. If you want to situate us not only geographically or in space, you have to get into a cosmo- cosmological narrative. We, ought, we blend that out because no one wants to think of the cosmological dimension because that sort of puts human life into perspective. What is going to happen to Earth in five billion years? What?
3: Hope it's
2: hmm? It will be what? Extinct. Extinct, yes. sun is going to engulf the earth. The sun is going to engulf the earth. In 5 billion years, our sun will run out of hydrogen. It will collapse in, in on itself and then it will balloon into a red giant. It will almost reach the earth. The atmosphere will evaporate. The rivers, seas will boil and the rocks will melt. That is the cosmological perspective. It kind of puts a different light on the problem of... on on the fact that you haven't paid your taxes. (laughs) Or that you haven't done your homework. So we forget the cosmological perspective. We sort of eliminate it, we forget about it, and then we take human life incredibly seriously. There are 30-year wars raging between families over the fact that someone did not wish someone on their birthday or that someone re-gifted a present that had already been given. <laughs> so this blending out of the cosmological dimension is what, what Lassen is doing. Not just spatially, but also temporally. If I ask you about your life and I ask you to start following that back, you will find that human history breaks down very, very fast. We care only about the last 30 years of political history. Then there are a few vague details we know about 200 years and maybe we go back a thousand years or two thousand years, and eventually it all just becomes, first it becomes geology or botany or biology, then it becomes geology, then it becomes physics, and then it becomes astrophysics. Human history can only be maintained, the privilege of history which we witness everywhere in the humanities can only be maintained through a massive act of self-denial. And that's the, that's the delusion in which we live. And that's the delusion the Mahabharata challenges us to break with when it starts the story with creation. And third and final, he takes out the Bhagavad Gita and all these philosophical things. So not only is there no way into the narrative, look at the way these two work. This is how you come into history, through the cosmology, right? This is how you get out of history, through becoming philosophical, through realizing I am more than this history, I am more than this body. I am more than my time. Who am I really? So you come into history by forgetting the cosmological, you remain trapped in history by forgetting the philosophical exit, which is provided in the Bhagavad Gita. I think he men- men- mentions it specifically. So what is left? History, only history, pure history. Who would do such a horrific thing? Who would trap you in history? or basically think of the greater picture. Right. Someone who does, why would they not want you to think of a greater picture? Maybe they are trapped in of uh, conquering. Okay, mm-hmm. good. Conquering, what else? because they are trapped in history. Because they are trapped in history themselves? Willingly or Unwillingly. So let's say I am told I go to one of those palmists or those parrots that pick out your fortunes and he says, 10 years from now, everyone around you will give you a million dollars, right? And in 10 years from now, your life is going to be perfect, you're going to be saved, you're going to be fantastically rich, and everyone around you is going to have to hand over all their money to you. Would I have an interest in trapping people in history? If they went and read the Bhagavad Gita, I would snatch the book from them and say, "No, no, no." Ten years later, you can do what you want, but you're going to remain trapped in history until you hand over what is going to ensure my salvation. Mm-hmm. So, this need to trap people in history, this need to make history all important and all conquering, it's coming from a very specific place. It's coming from the experience of someone. I've given you a very simple example. Someone who has some expectations from history, right? Do you see that? Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Only someone who is expecting to get something out of history and to get something positive out of history and in fact to be saved in history is going to insist on history. And that person is going to have a problem every time someone else tries to get out of history or transcend history. What would that narrative be? Let's look at that narrative. This is biblical history. We'll come in a second to why these conditions, why specifically in Christianity, history became all important. But this is kind of a map of how creation begins. But if you're created, not even the creation stories matter. They're already only in the Old Testament. The whole direction of history is now moving forwards. Right? So creation is put aside. It's happened. It's common to everyone. But the really significant event, events that are going to give history meaning is this one and then this one. Christianity creates a vector for history going forwards. And it creates an experience, that experience is known as anticipation or awaiting. Exactly as I was awaiting these ten years to have all my dreams fulfilled and to get all that money from you, Christianity is awaiting something that is known as the second coming of Christ. And at this moment, the good and the damned, the saved and the damned will be separated. I don't have a slide for you, but you all know the beautiful vision Michelangelo on the Sistine Chapel? Have you seen the drama of how certain people are being hurled down and others are coming up? So that is the end of the Last Judgement. And that is what all of history now is looking towards. Christianity really pulls, this is a uh, painting by Matthias Grunewald, it's the Eisenheim Altarpiece, piece, and you see how the historical figure of Christ, as a human, not as a God, not as someone who is transcending history, but someone who himself has descended into history, been broken and trapped by it, and this is John pointing out, and the sentence which you can't read here in Latin, he is pointing to the fulfillment of his prophecy. And Mary here has sort of swooned and fallen. It is one of the most dramatic representations of the crucifixion. And although the person who painted it is a Catholic painter, and this hung in the abbey or the hospice of St. Anthony, all Protestant theologians picked up this painting. Tillich picked it up, and Karl Barth picked it up, and they said, this painting really is the heart of the Christian message. This painting represents Protestantism because it is no longer the god of the ancients, no longer manifesting in his splendor, in his potency, but this broken figure. This is what really happens. This is why world history becomes important. Every culture will now be sucked in. In some way, every culture will have to join in this finger. If you want to know where we are located historically, we have been located somewhere here. That all events, all cultures, all histories are somehow pointing to this event. That is why Mr. Christian Larsen insists on the historical. Somehow everything, every little event, every text has to be pulled into an overarching historical narrative that will point towards one event and one event only. Does anyone know what that history is, the term for that history? You learn Asian history or Indian history or South Asian history. What is the largest term at which we learn history? World history. We learn history as world history. That's a strange concept, actually, if you think about it, right? History is just a narrative. So it's now a world narrative. How did all these different stories get submerged into one story? What is the connecting thread? How did we draw them all? You can't do this with your family. If you try to make their individual stories part of your larger story, there will be a fight. They'll say, don't submerge my story into your story. But strangely, we accept the concept of a world history where all these different stories of different peoples, even our individual life stories, have been now submerged. If I asked you about your life, you would first locate it within sort of your local family history, then maybe the history of your city, but very soon, you would not stop at India and say, look, I can locate this within Indian history or within the history of the Mahabharata, you would somehow relate it to a larger world history. And what would that history look like? That history would be this. Eventually all of us, because this is modernity and we are all moderns, (coughs) eventually all of us will locate our history in this story of progress. Either we have progressed or we have not progressed. Either we are on the path or we are not on the path. Either some elements in our lives have to be changed, some parts of our society have to be reformed, so that we can all join in this march forwards. But history having a movement forwards, have you even thought about that? That's a strange notion. The fact that there's one history? Also a strange notion. The fact that we're all moving in the same direction? Have you ever thought about this? That even in your own families, everyone is moving at different speeds. in different directions, right? Everyone has their own narrative and their narrative has a different goal or a different telos. The Greek word telos just means goal or end, right? But now suddenly through this, through modernity, through colonization, suddenly we all have a common telos, a common goal. And that goal is a kind of salvation. We will now attain a heavenly state on earth. This is the secularization of the Christian paradise. So modernity emerges out of Christianity. First Christianity emerges out of Jewish messianism. In Judaism, there is a Messiah who is to come. So the entire interpretation of the Old Testament is based around looking for signs of the coming of the Messiah. Then there is this small sect that says the Messiah has come. History has achieved its purpose. It has been fulfilled. Now there is only to be the realization of the Kingdom of Ends. And modernity takes that idea of a Kingdom of Ends and says it will be realized, not in some heaven but here and now. A Lexus for every one of us. That's sort of the secular analogue of Christian salvation. And be honest with yourselves because I've driven around Pune the last four uh, four days and I've seen the number of car dealerships. (laughs) Don't we all basically believe in this? A Lexus or a Mercedes or a BMW for all. That is where we are. Subsumed, picked up out of our narratives and subsumed into this large world historical narrative so that we now see our lives as meaningful only vis-a-vis what that narrative posits as the goal. Yes. Uh, it may appear a little naive
3: to you because I'm not on the level of it
4: theology that you are speaking of, but did you insist so much on history, mm-hmm. and for me, mm-hmm. not
0: having the same perspective as you, because you study it differently, is time bound. Whereas if I look at Mahabharata as mythology, yeah. then it becomes timeless.
2: Okay.
0: It doesn't need to attach itself to it.
2: That's a good question, and that's exactly where we are going. <laughs> so, um, that was sort of the first half of my presentation. And now you're going to look at a different way. You're going to learn about a completely different way to read the Mahabharata. It's a way in which we don't pick up this text and stuff it into our world history. We start seeing world history itself as just a flash, just a second, within this larger cosmological narrative the Mahabharata is telling. So I'm going to hand over to Vishwa. I'm going to stand here and do the slides for him as he. So the directs me, but he's going to
4: speak. <laughs> Thank you very much. I hope you can hear my voice. It's not as trained um, as Joey's uh, voice, but um, I have something to tell you. So this history is like an earthworm. It, has, it begins in Genesis, and it ends in the coming of Christ and the fulfillment of the promise. And all humanities will arrange all of reality along the segments of this earthworm. Is there any doubt why humanities are dead? (laughs) It is a mechanical process of finding which segment came before the next segment. This must be earlier, this must be later. Humanities have become so shameless that you don't even bother giving a date. All you have to say is, this passage must be earlier than this passage. This must be later. So, there is an intellectual laziness, there is a lack of application of intelligence, and there is a mechanization, a technology of method that we use in humanities. All that has to do with the soul, all that has to do with imagination, all that has to do with creativity, all that has to do with the human art of living with each other, expressing things with, to each other and having ethics is sucked out of humanities uh, with the discovery of the historical method. This has already happened. right? I mean, no intelligent person will want to study humanities when they could go into science. It is only if you do not have the grades to go into science. And this is the greatness of India, that in India we've discovered the end of humanities already. Here, you really have to apply to medical school and fail. You have to apply, Then you apply to engineering and fail. Then you at least apply to IT and fail. And then you wear a Jola and show up for that humanities class of that bag. It is practically a joke. But that is the wisdom because Indian Indians will continue to read the Mahabharata, but they will not value humanities in this form. Machine? Yeah. So first let's uh, go to what do we know So humani- So, for humanities to exist we have to ask two questions What do we know and what ought we do How do we know anything? Whatever is created in the world we know through perception This is perception And through what is perceived, we create a world view, which today is historical. The Greek word for perception is aisthesis. Aisthesis means to perceive. So the world of perception is somehow naively confused in history as reality. Now. Is history happening on Pluto or not? Is history happening on the moon or not?
2: Not in your sense. In any sense? Why?
4: What is missing?
2: Yeah, a
4: human intellect has to narrate the events and give them significance. Without that intellectual throwing of light, there is only dark events, events without meaning. When you look at history itself in the humanities, what is subtracted out of it? precisely that human element. We say, that poem was written on such and such a date. Were you there to see it? And why are you telling me this? What should I do with this information? It is precisely the subtraction of uh, the human intellect. In the story of history, it is the story of the intellect that is constantly subtracted. Therefore, history is, can only give us a cadaver. It can only give us death. It can only give us meaninglessness. It can only give us nihilism, which arrived in Europe, as Nietzsche pointed out. In 20th century, we arrived with, we can't know anything... We suspect everything and there is a profound loss of ethical structures. So in World War II, uh, the greatest uh, evils were perpetrated across the world in not just the Holocaust, but also the Communist Revolution. So we are now at a place where we do not have values and we do not have ethics. So, therefore, uh, we need a text that questions these things. Uh, and we, we think, or we came to the Mahabharata after having read Hegel and Western philosophy and Western literature and having lived through uh, the absolute death of that paradigm. What do we know? What is real? The question of reality gets thrown up in the 20th century, 21st century, especially with virtual reality. Correct? So, uh, the question, science now uh, is able to manipulate external reality to such an extent that the question of what is real uh, becomes an an important question. (laughs) How do we know anything? Through perception. But Vyasa and the ancient Indians already questioned perception, aesthesis, and they presented reality as itihasa, which is an aesthetic object. So, unlike the ridiculously naive view of presenting reality as history, They presented it as itihasa, as if it were a story, a meaningful narration, a work of art. What is a work of art lit by? The human intellect and human purpose. The human design and the human element. The ethical nature of art. Art is always ethical. So, uh, now the Mahabharata will say, Uh, will do something really strange. To explain that, I first have to show you a machine. Suppose this is your brain, and there are five electrodes connected to a machine, and visual data is given to me as if there were an ocean. Olfactory data is given to me, so I smell a sea. Uh, Tactile information is fed into my brain as if I'm in the sunshine. Then this brain would, because of the computer, imagine that it is a person on a beach. Do you see this? Do you see the simulated reality here? Let's push this one step forward. Suppose, Suppose there is a machine called the experience machine. If you enter that experience machine, look, it's called the happiness machine, you plug yourself in. It will constantly keep satisfying your desires until you die. Will you enter that machine? Think about it, that you are looking for a job, or you're looking for meaning, you're looking for a life, you you want a, a, a comfortable job, a comfortable old age, you do not want any joint pains or back pains, you do not want any breathing troubles, you want to breathe pure air. No. Why would you want to go out? Why would, because if you want to go out, then, you know, you would think about entering it first. Why would you enter such a machine, or why would you rather not enter such a machine? Because that you become a new knowledge, so then you would always
3: learn
0: something more. So at some point of time, unless you have the
4: opposite theme, the atmosphere has no meaning. Yeah, but I feel pleasure for the rest of my life while not plugging to the machine. Is there a reason not to enter this machine? No, yes. It is not authentic. But what, is, what does authentic mean? What is really real?
3: We have to worry about what
4: is really real because the one. is like that. A Chinese philosopher called Zhuangzi uh, uh, once dreamt that he was a butterfly. And when he was dreaming he was a butterfly, he knew that he was just a butterfly. And then when he woke up, there he was. Say, said, am I Swatzi dreaming of being a butterfly or am I a butterfly dreaming of, <laughs> of being Zwanzee? And you know this is central to Indian philosophy. It appears already in the
3: Mandukya Upanishad.
4: Very good. It appears in the Mandukya Upanishad. Once there is a dream world, and I already have this altered sense of, or alternatives to this reality, the question of what is really real uh, comes up in such a way that perception is no longer sufficient to guarantee uh, my sense of what is really real. What do, so, huh? what do we need more than perception? Exactly. And that is what uh, the Mahabharata will uh, want to teach you. Because the entire human history, or all the things you know—not just events, but also imagined events—all that is scooped up, and Vyasa creates an experience machine. What is once you enter the Mahabharata, you are living not just your life; you're living all the possible uh, ramifications. Iterations, all the versions of what a life can be in that experience machine. So, if I have to enter into the Mahabharata, if that experience machine has to be pedagogical, meaning that there is some purpose to it, that's why I enter it, and that purpose is both knowledge of what is really real as well as what I ought to do, i.e. ethics, then the experience machine will serve some purpose. I will learn in that experience machine how reality is, and I will know what is important and what I ought to do. And when I exit that machine, that literary machine, I enter this perceptual machine called the universe and I will know what to do Do you see? If I just live on the historical level, the possibility of ethics is zero. But once I'm so, it is not this way that yeah, the Mahabharata is a work of art that imitates the universe. It is a universe that will reflect the world. Do you see this? it will reflect the world and make it meaningful. It is almost as if all the perceptual reality is taken up like a hologram and plotted in a three-dimensional dharma field. And that dharma field will tell you what is really real and what you ought to do. This means that there is only one text that is relevant to humanities today and that's the Mahabharata. Either humanities teach the Mahabharata or they close shop and go home because otherwise they're just there to take your money. (laughs) Because the Mahabharata tells you that the perceptual world and the historical narrative is also a narrative, Mythology will always tell the truth because it will always put quotation marks and say, this is a narrative. History will always lie because history will always suppress the fact that it is just another perception. Do you see the value of, between mythology and history? History is always a lie, a falsification. Mythology is always telling the truth. And therefore Plato, whenever his dialogue moves uh, dialectically to a certain level, will immediately tell a story, a myth. The portions, the myths in platonic dialogue are the most philosophically profound <laughs> segments. And that's where Joy and I first began to realize the of Mahabharata. So, would you step into this machine? The answer is no, because you want something authentic. But what is authentic is precisely our ethical self, our dharma self. It is for the sake of dharma that uh, one should not enter this machine You don't feel that that's ethical, uh, but you won't enter it already because you know pleasure is not sufficient. And that's the beginning of ethics. Pleasure is not everything. So, I will come to this machine, I will be tempted by it. Like you, I'd say, if I could go into it for half an hour and have my pleasure and come out of it, Uh, but then this is not an experience machine, it's a spa. (laughs) Uh, So, this is the reason why uh, uh, the Mahabharata is so, so important. How does the Mahabharata do this? Should not any work of art be able to do this? Does not every work of art reveal a, a, a slice of the world outside? No. Because... In reality, uh, in in our everyday perceptual reality, we perceive everything as nature, and then we perceive a specific object as a work of art. Right? So we never get to the point where uh, we become aware that everything is a spaces. The whole universe is an aesthetic piece of art. So Vyasa's challenge is to destroy the limit between art and nature, art and history. How does he do that? Anyone? The Pandavas and Kauravas are whose children? Pandu and Dhritarashtra. Pandu and Dhritarashtra are whose sons? Vyasa's. Wait a minute, Vyasa is the author. (laughs) How can an author enter a text and biologically inseminate the royal widows of Hastinapura? Only if there is an equivalence between art and perceived reality. No other work of art achieves that. Every other work of art exists in history, dependent on history. And you locate and understand that work of art precisely through art history to look at the material conditions of the production of that artwork and its significances and influences on other works of art. But the Mahabharata erases the difference between a work of art, written in ink, and nature propagating through biological reproduction. Do you see this? that there is no world outside. Vyasa can come in and walk out any moment now. The door can open and Vyasa can walk in and walk out because this is an experience machine we are living in. And how do we exit that machine? First, we want to know that we have to do something. Otherwise, you'll just be like a frog sitting in that machine. And that is why the Mahabharata is a dharma shastra. It's a text that tells you that certain things are recommended things to do. And they are never presented as joy so wonderfully shown as the Decalogue, Ten Commandments, 646 commandments. They are presented as situations narrative situations. And where you take your narrative and plug it into this master narrative, unlock your narrative and you come away free having done the ethical it. Now you see why no other book is needed than the Mahabharata. How did I get here? How did Joy get here? we were studying Hana Arendt. And she already found limits with this sense of law, which is uh, doctrinal or dogmatic. And she said, you know, you have to tell your story. Only in narrative can you explicate ethics properly. Guess what? The Mahabharata did it. It took the dogmatic law code from Manu and transformed it into a narrative. It took Nietzsche who said, I would, this is an experience machine. You have to live heroically. You can't just live like this, blinking, nihilistically. So the Mahabharata is now explicable thanks to Western philosophy. Its dramatic rise and failure for the first time allows us to rethink the Mahabharata in an extraordinarily relevant way. The Mahabharata will open up avenues for us to think in ways that even the commentators did not have to, but we have to. Dharma in the Mahabharata is, <laughs> is uh, provided in a very complex way. It is like the skeleton of the book. And its, its map will give you the logic of the whole text. How the text is uh, uh, given. So it took me a long time. Uh, to because what how do you translate dharma, anyone? What meaning do you give to it? Just one that holds together. Duties? Just one that holds together. One that holds together. How? Through a purpose. Yeah. Through its excellence or through its purpose. So the, the virtue or the dharma of a horse is to be a Good horse, fast, strong, and so on. The dharma of the sun is to shine. The dharma of a cow is to give milk. The dharma of the planets is to go in an orderly way. For humans, we have the additional sense of ethics. So that is pr- provided in the mahabharata in this way. There is nivriti dharma or get out of the cycle. So this is really real get out of the experience machine, think beyond the perceptual. Then there is pravriti dharma or the dharma within the machine, within the universe, which has electricity and the, the perceptual apparatus, physical laws. And it also has normative dharma, which is macroscopic, microscopic and mesocosmic macroscopic has to do with the world. And there, God will intervene in terms of avatarana and para But all avataras are placed in pralaya moments and junctures. At this time, the one purpose of Narayana in every avatar, Mother Earth will go to Krishna and say, I am burdened, Unburden me. Vishnu will give the assurance that he will heal the earth, take care of the earth, save the earth, unburden the para, from the earliest when he will uplift Mother Earth in Varaha. This is of
3: extreme
4: importance to us in climate change times, ecological consciousness, and so on microscopically what I, as as an individual, what I have to do? That is a swadharma, okay? If I suddenly woke up and said I want to be a politician I am breaking my swadharma, it's not something I'm equipped to do and if I try to do it, well you see what's happening with Trump. <laughs> it's a clear example of how How bad stuff can happen if you do not obey swadharma. In the minimum sense of, do I have the capacity to do so? So one of the biggest ethical things I'm doing for this planet is, I'm not running for office. (laughs) Because I don't have the training, I don't have that intelligence, I don't have that imagination, I don't have that skill set. Then. Mesoposmic dharma, meaning societal dharmas, these are complicated and flexible. They are yuga dharmas. What should the government do? Uh, what is raja dharma? What is apad dharma? What is varnashrama dharma? What is kula dharma? Jati dharma? Sri dharma? So all these dharmas are thrown in. These are negotiable. These belong to the law of the land. So if I live in America, I have to obey the American constitution. Swadharma, I have to listen to who I am and obey. And I have to always take care of the earth. Notice that the avatara will save me, not by snapping a finger, right? Krishna does not stop the war. Krishna does not save Arjuna. There is no, no place where Arjuna will go to heaven or so quickly from the battlefield. He's given a philosophical discourse. Knowledge alone will save. Why? Because knowledge alone will explicate the problem of a perceptual world. And it's in reality. Look we'll this right. So, what are all our gods? They are odd links in the experience machine. Suddenly there is an elephant head god who's sitting and writing everything. Ganesha. Who's heard of such a thing? Blue? Really? Forearms? So, those cognitive manipulations will reveal the creativity and the intelligence that is saving us. And that is how the supreme light of lights will manifest itself in this perceptual machine. That is how the gods live in the Hindu imagination, as beacons that say, wake up, this is a perceptual. Something is strange here. Look, I have a kid that's eating mud. Krishna eats mud. And his brother goes and says, Mom, Krishna is eating mud. And that says, did you eat it? No, I didn't eat mud. And then, When Krishna opens his mouth to show her that he really didn't eat mud, guess what? All the universes are there. All the mud that can be eaten is there. (laughs) And suddenly, if you have sraddha or philosophical imagination, you look at it and say, hmm, let me think about it. Suddenly, the cosmological, the transhistorical, the ethical, the everything that is not fitting into the perceptual world appears. There is a rupture in the matrix, because you see the movie
3: that's,
4: that's our original sense of divinity because the word diva, deva, comes from the root, "div," which means to shine. It's an intellectual category. And when you are truly thinking beyond the material, then you really do see gods everywhere. It is only God. So, does anybody know that Vasudeva is all? <laughs> So that when you, when you realize that Vasudeva is all, you have woken up from this reality. So cognitively and ethically, pedagogically as going beyond the absurd earthworm history, it's like it's like a piece of spaghetti. You know. History is like it's in a plate, and you're like, you know, here everything began, here everything is ending, and you're constantly looking for the end. You're waiting for the end, and if the end is not coming, you're causing the end.
3: <laughs>
4: you know. or at least you're standing on Times Square and saying the end is coming, the end is coming, and then and all that fails, you vote for.